It is uh, it's uncanny how often everything works in practice. <laughs> and then whatever happens during Sunday school, I guess I'll never know. But um, Thanks, Val. We just wanted to test you, see what you're made of this morning. Beautiful song. Thanks for that. Well, you obviously know Christmas is this week, so Merry Christmas. Uh, I, I hope... Hope the Advent season has uh, has been one in which you've been able to to keep your to keep Jesus in your mind, keep him in front of your eyes over these past few weeks. Uh, I know there's a lot of busyness and details and and stress that can that can come with Christmas in in uh, in our context, but uh, but I hope that that regardless of whatever this come upcoming week looks like. Uh, whether it's busy or relaxing, whatever's, whatever's in front of you, that I hope you'll be able to look for those moments to, to just dwell upon the incredible love shown by God through his becoming human. Um, truly is amazing. And, and I, uh, humbly, I, I hope this morning's sermon can, can play a part in that. And, and so, as we dive into the text for today, I, I thought I'd start by just giving you my big takeaway from what I'll share this morning. So if I could sum up what we're going to talk about in, in, a, in a short statement that's easily remembered and, and hopefully impactful, this is it. Here's the summary. Jesus is not Santa Claus. Probably thinking, boy, Aaron, how much time did you put into that one? <laughs> Is this a, in the pastor world, is this a Sunday morning special where you're just getting up and winging it on, on Sunday morning? I promise you I'm not, but of course Jesus isn't Santa Claus, right? One, one guy's a jolly man in a big red suit. The other, the other is the savior of the world who died on the cross for us. Those two things aren't easily confused. But I, I, I think if you'll allow me to make an observation this morning and, and attempt to defend my observation, I I think we can too easily treat Jesus like Santa Claus. I, I think the temptation for mankind in general is to treat whatever God they believe in like Santa Claus. And, and I wish that didn't hold true for us as Christians, but I, but I think the temptation remains for us too. So, uh, but as I've already stated, Jesus is not Santa Claus, and, and, and what we're going to see this morning in Luke's gospel is that that's a very good thing. That's a very good thing for us. And so I'm probably wondering how in the world the end of Luke 10 and the beginning of Luke 11 fits in with all of that. So, uh, so, so let's dive right in. The end of Luke chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 38. And, and this is the story of Jesus entering the home of Martha and Mary, one that we've maybe heard many times before. But it goes like this. Luke 10, 38 says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken, from, taken away from her. 
Now, if I can jump back to Santa Claus for just a moment, every child who has been taught about Santa Claus, and every adult for that matter, knows there's a couple things to keep in mind when it comes to Santa. First, you have to try your best to be a good boy or girl during the year, right? That's essential. Santa's got this list with your name on it, and because he sees you when you're sleeping and when you're awake, then he knows if you've been good or bad. It makes me wonder, I don't know how much bad we can get into when we're sleeping, but, but apparently he knows. He knows whether we've been good or bad. His investigation is very thorough. And of course, those, uh, we know that those who are good receive gifts, and then those who are bad get that lump of coal. So, so when it comes to Santa, he rewards those who are good, and he punishes those who are bad. So we have to know that. And then second, it, it, it's of vital importance that you make a list you got to make a list of the things you want for Christmas and either mail it to Santa at the North Pole or you go to uh, the mall, right? Tell them, tell them in person. And, and because Santa loves boys and girls who've been very good over the past year, he always gets the thing that they, that they want most from their list. I mean, that, we, we know we're, we're taught that. But back to the Gospel of Luke. I know Santa wasn't a thing in the time of Jesus, but but think about Martha in this story and, and consider whether or not she's treating Jesus a little bit like Santa. I mean, let's think about this. So Jesus and his disciples, they show up at the home of their good friends. And, and, and as would be the custom in this context, whether it was strangers or close friends who, come, who came into town, hospitality was shown often in the form of shelter and food. That, that, was, that was common in that context. And, and you know, it's one thing if a single person comes to your house unexpectedly. It's not quite so hard to set an extra place at the table or find a place for them to sleep that night. But, but imagine if 13 people rang your doorbell at dinner tonight and asked if you might be able to welcome them into your home. That's no small undertaking, right? Even if it's 13 of your closest family and friends, that, there's still, that's something that's going to require a good amount of work if that were to happen this evening. So it was no small task for Martha to welcome this group into her home. And I would, I would feel, well, I, you know, I, you, you look at this, and I, I think it makes sense that when it says there, there was much serving to do, well, well, yeah, of course there was much serving to do when that many people show up. And, and in Martha's defense, she was carrying out her culturally obligated role. I mean, this would have been expected, even though it was 13 people showing up, would have been expected to show hospitality there. And, and I think I think Martha was probably even doing it out of love for Jesus, not not just strict social obligation. I, I'm sure this flowed out of Martha's love for Jesus, but in the midst of all her work, she noticed something. Martha noticed something. She noticed that Mary, who possessed an equally functional set of hands and feet, was not using them, was just sitting there in front of Jesus, listening, not helping with all of the work that needed to be done. Now, now, we've been in that kind of a situation before, right? We've all been in a situation like that. We've found ourselves having to perform a task because someone else either, either purposefully or, or ignorantly 
just left us to do all the work. Maybe they knew they were doing that, maybe they didn't, but we, found our, we, we have found ourselves in that type of situation before, where we're doing all the work, somebody else is, is slacking off, in our opinion. And, and it's about that time that we start having the conversations in our head, isn't it, about what we're going to say to them when, we've, when we finally confront them about it? Like, like, come on, did you not notice? Like, do you not care? Do you not love me? Are you trying to stick it to me? I mean, we can have these conversations in our head. Maybe it's just me, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that does that, but my hunch is we've been there before. Well, with Martha, I think, you know, the, the steam kind of builds up enough that Martha eventually went and said something to Jesus. She didn't go to Mary, but, but said something to Jesus. And she starts by questioning Jesus' care for her personally. Like, Jesus, don't you care? I mean, whew, <laughs> this is Jesus, close friend. But Jesus, don't you care about the position that I'm in here? And then she gets even more bold and, and proceeds to order Jesus to get Mary moving. I mean, think about that. Martha's telling Jesus what to do. Like, Jesus, you need to go tell Mary to get on it. I mean, this is, this is pretty bold here. And, and I think it's about this point in the story where we, we, we can all become professional psychiatrists and begin to analyze the different personality types of these two women, right? I mean, you've probably heard this before. Martha obviously has to be this type A, firstborn, Enneagram 3 kind of person, right? And then you got Mary, she, she, she's obviously this laid back, youngest child, Enneagram 7 kind of person, right? And, 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 and we start thinking that way and the application becomes about what the Martha type people can learn from the Mary type people, right? Have you ever heard this kind of presented in that way before? And I, 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 think, I think there could be some benefit to that type of analysis. But I want us to hold off on making those personality judgments today and, and, and just focus instead on how Jesus frames the situation, how he responds to what's going on. Because Jesus made an observation about both Martha and Mary. He makes one about both, both women. So Jesus observed that Martha was, what did he say, anxious and troubled. Jesus looked at everything and I mean, hit the nail on the head. Martha, you're anxious you're troubled about many things. And, and Luke even gives us a little commentary in verse, uh, verse 40 by telling us that Martha was distracted by her serving. So, so we know what she's anxious and troubled about. It's all the details, everything that needed to happen. And, and you know, I, I think in Martha's mind, the most important thing was, was what she was able to do for Jesus. The most important thing was doing her job before Jesus. She became so worried about it that, that she became anxious and troubled, as Jesus noticed. And again, I think it came from a genuine love for Jesus. I, I don't doubt that in Martha, but it led to anxiety in her nonetheless. And I think in a way, she's treating Jesus very much like Santa Claus. She needed to be this good little girl and, and do all the right things if she was going to win the favor of Jesus. And, and I think any of us who've, who've ever found ourselves functioning in that way can nod our heads in agreement when, when Martha is described as anxious and troubled. If, if I view Jesus as someone who sees me when I'm sleeping and when I'm awake in, in order to keep track of every misstep that I make, then it won't take me long to be anxious and troubled, right? 
And so as I, as I try to picture this scene in my mind, I, I see and I hear Jesus talking to Martha with both sadness and compassion. I think I sense both of that here, right? Sadness that, that Martha feels like she has to impress him or earn his favor, but also compassion that she's needlessly carrying around this, the weight and the stress of, of her anxiety. And, you know, I think about, about us today, and, and, and that may describe some of us. Some of us may be carrying around that type of anxiety today. We, we can be tempted to think that, that we need to be that good boy or that good girl, and do that in, before Jesus in order to earn his favor, that, that his favor depends on our work for him. Now, I, I imagine quite a few of us have grown up being told that we can't earn our salvation by our good works. And if you haven't grown up hearing that, hopefully you've, you've heard that numerous times in your life. And if you've not, let me say it this morning, that we do not earn our salvation by good works. That, that is an absolutely correct statement. Our salvation comes through God's loving grace poured out on us by way of his death and his resurrection. That's where our salvation comes from. But just because we believe that statement, it doesn't mean that we're immune from attempting to earn God's favor, his, his non-salvific favor, through actions. And I don't know if that's an actual term or not, non-salvific favor, but I'm going to use it this morning. Right? Talking about uh, what I'm referring to is not God's favor associated with salvation, but God's favor not associated with salvation, non-salvific favor. So in other words, we, we know we can't earn salvation by our works, but yet there might be other ways in which we attempt to earn God's favor. Not connected to our salvation, but more connected to his just love for us, how he views us. So, so again, practically, practically, I might not be trying to earn my salvation. I may say, yes, I know salvation is by, by grace alone, it's through faith, it's, it's what, what Jesus has done for me on the cross, but, but, but man, I, I might still assume that, oh boy, Jesus is going to be very disappointed in me if I do something wrong, or if I don't do something right, don't do what I'm supposed to do, or, or I, I know I can't work for my salvation, but, but I assume that God will love me a little bit more if I can just manage to do a little bit more for him, be a little bit better for him. And I don't think we would say it that way and maybe wouldn't even think about it quite in those terms, but, but I think if, if we really stop and examine ourselves and if I, if I examine myself, I, I think I can see that temptation to earn God's non-salvific favor, that that temptation's a little more prevalent than I might like it to be. And I think what we see in Martha here is that type of thing. There's all these things that need to be done for Jesus and I'm going to do them so that I can do what I'm supposed to do, earn that favor, earn that love from Jesus. And so I would say for you, for me, if, if we find ourselves anxious and troubled because of the things we either are or aren't doing for God, then, then I think we should do what Jesus encouraged Martha to do and take a look at Mary. And Mary in this story is actually the one who is not carrying out her cultural role. 
Martha is, as the woman of the house, she is carrying out her role. Uh, You can say that Jesus, as the rabbi, is carrying out his role by teaching those who are present. Mary sitting at Jesus' feet in devotion to him, that's not her cultural role. She is not supposed to be doing that. And yet, Jesus pointed to her and he commended her, commended her for his devotion to him. So rather than than pursue an image or pursue a position before Jesus, Mary, I think, pursued a relationship with Jesus. It wasn't about what Mary was doing for Jesus. It was about being with Jesus. I think think that's what we see coming from Mary here. And, And in making this point, I'm not trying to infer that our actions don't matter one bit. I'm not trying to say that. The things we do matters and there's consequences and, and, and blessings that can come from our decisions. And so we ought to seek to honor God with our actions. But when those actions lead us to being anxious and troubled, I think odds are we've shifted to trying to earn God's favor. That we're acting a little bit more like Martha uh, than, than like Mary here. When we make Jesus into someone predominantly concerned with judging how well we are or aren't living, I think we turn Jesus into Santa Claus. I mean, that's Santa's role, right? Decide who's been good or bad, who gets gifts or not. Uh, Santa Claus only cares about my actions. That's it. I mean, that's what we're taught, right? Jesus cares about me. And, And there's a difference there because one leads to more of a Martha-type response, and one leads to a Mary-type response. So, so at the end of chapter 10 here, I, I think we see this story about devotion to God. We examine how Mary and Martha both responded to Jesus coming into their house. When we get to chapter 11, it shifts a bit and and along with devotion, starts talking about communication with God. So look at, what, look at what's written at uh, the beginning of Luke chapter 11. This says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him what he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So again, if we can jump back to the tradition of Santa Claus for just a moment. When children go to see Santa, the scene that unfolds is, is largely the same every time. The child gets on Santa's lap. Santa asks the child if he or she has been good this year, and the child makes his or her case before Santa. And then San- Santa asks the child, well, what do you want for Christmas? And the child lists one or, or, or maybe a, a whole list of things, and the child gets down off of Santa's lap, assuming that he or she is going to get their, uh, their wish, that it's going to happen. The question that we can ask is, is that also an accurate description of my prayers or your prayers to God? If someone asked me how my prayers differ from that common scene at the mall during December, what would I tell them? Do I ever treat it like that? You know, when a child sits on Santa's lap at the mall and and, and rattles off their list, the only thing on their mind really is the red suit, right? They're They're not concerned with the person beneath the suit. It's all about what that red suit can do for them. Right, remember that UPS slogan from a few years ago, what can brown do for you? I, what can the red suit do for you? I mean, I, I think that's really what it comes down to. When the disciples ask Jesus what their conversations with God should look like, the picture that Jesus painted is one very different from Santa at the mall, very different. I mean, the conversation begins with the focus upon God himself and God's purposes. It's not about what God can do for us. It's about his name being glorified. It's about his purposes being carried out. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Do you hear the, the, the difference in focus there? And then even after that, even when speaking with God about our own needs, the focus still remains on our reliance upon God relying upon God's provision, give us each day our daily bread, Um, relying on God's mercy, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us, Uh, relying upon God's guidance, lead us not into temptation. I I think it's safe to say that when a child thinks about Santa, it's, it's not about any kind of relationship. It's really not, right? Even when face to face with a real live Santa. It's about a transaction. It's not about a relationship. And you go back to what Jesus said and how they should pray. The very first words spoken by Jesus in his response just screams relationship. What's that very first word? Father. That's relationship language, right? I mean, now, now Father is someone from whom we owe our very existence. They, 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 they played a part in creating us. Uh, a father's someone who holds a place of authority in our lives, as children especially, right? And so they're to be obeyed because of the authority that God has given to them. But, but for today's purposes, a father is also meant to be someone with whom we have a deep abiding relationship. And I realize that it isn't always the case in our broken world, but, but it is supposed to be that way. 
And so the, the, this prayer to God given by Jesus is meant to be one which fosters relationship with God. It, it, it's, I think it's meant to bring balance to our concerns so that we don't just focus on our own needs but also on God himself, recognizing who God is, drawing closer to him. And, and along these lines, Jesus went on to talk about what God is like. He, he, he utilized this common literary device of, of using something lesser to emphasize something greater. And so you see that here. He, he, he starts by sharing this story. He says someone has a friend, comes to his house late at night in need of hospitality. And, and again, as we talked about with Mary and Martha, that, that's, that's part of the culture. Offering hospitality is assumed in that culture. So the traveler arrives at midnight, and, and really that's not the noteworthy point of the story. We might think today, well, that's kind of a bad time to show up. Why would they get there at midnight? But, uh, I mean, we think about our context, right? I mean, I, when we go visit Megan's uh, parents, we pull out of the driveway, and the GPS tells us the exact minute we're supposed to get there. I mean, it's really incredible when you think about it. And not only that, but we can text Megan's mom before we're even out of the neighborhood, and she knows when we're supposed to get there. But that's, the, that's not the case then. I mean, we know that. So to, to arrive at midnight, that, that wasn't necessarily the shocking point of the story. And, and in addition, the man in bed with his family not being willing to get up at midnight, that's not really all that noteworthy either. Would you want to? I mean, in, in a time when families all slept in the same room, would you want to get up at midnight and wake up the baby and everybody else so that you can go get some food together? I mean, I, th that's not necessarily noteworthy that this individual is hesitating in doing that. What is noteworthy is that the person at the door persisted in asking, wearing the man down until he finally got up to give his friend the three loaves, basically so he'd be quiet and leave him alone. I mean, that's what's noteworthy in the story. So, so what's the lesser that emphasizes the greater? The, the lesser is that even a friend who isn't much of a friend to someone in need will grant a request due to the impudence or, or the boldness of the one asking. And so you think about the greater, since God is much greater than a fair-weather friend, we can be assured that when we ask, he answers, and when we seek, we'll find him, and when we knock, the door will be opened. You know, if we consider these instructions from Jesus to be this blank check that can be cashed in any way we might see fit, we really have missed the point of what Jesus is saying here. I mean, a few verses ago, Jesus just directed us regarding our communication with Jesus. The uh, the, the, the promise in this passage is that, that when we individually and collectively pray, according to the example Jesus gave, we can be assured that God will respond to us, and he will open himself to us. He's not like this fair-weather friend that after enough knocking, he finally will. God is willing. He's ready. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to pray the exact words of the, the prayer here or, or the, the longer one in Matthew chapter 6. And there's nothing wrong with praying those words. We definitely can. And believers throughout history of the history of the church have, have done so, and they've found great benefit from that. And it's a good prayer to pray. But, but 
as a model, the point is to, to direct our conversation with God in such a way that it's less like visiting Santa Claus and, and more like, like humbly dialoguing together with our Heavenly Father, focused upon Him, focused upon our relationship with Him. And, and, and Jesus goes on to make one more point using this, this lesser to greater literary device. He, he spoke about earthly fathers and, and how those fathers would not give something harmful to their child who had asked them for something beneficial. He says, of course you wouldn't do that. Uh, again, if, if even earthly fathers do not treat their children in this way, then, then we can be confident that our heavenly father will give us something even greater than, than good gifts. He'll give us the Holy Spirit, as Jesus mentioned here. He'll, he'll give us his very self to live inside of us and to dwell within us. And, and, and you know, yet again, the focus shifts from a, from a transaction to a relationship. The absolute best thing that God could ever give us is himself. I mean, that, that's Christmas, right? I mean, isn't that what we've been dwelling upon this last month? Jesus coming to earth, giving of himself to humanity. And, and because he loves us so much, we, he will not withhold himself from us when we seek after him. He will give himself to us. There's no, there's no question about it. When we ask, he will answer. When we knock, the door will be opened. He will give of himself. You know, when I think about these passages together, Mary and Martha and Mary you know, dwelling at Jesus' feet in devotion of him, and I think about praying about the relationship that is meant to be present there, that's such a blessing. And that, that's, I think that's such a blessing any time in our lives where we're tempted to kind of fall into an, an anxious and troubled way of living, but, but especially during Christmas as well when things can be extra troubling and there's extra anxiety. You know, and uh, walk into any Christian bookstore or, or the Christian section of any, any bookstore and you'll find shelves and shelves of books that are focused on a couple things. Find a lot of books focused on Christian living and you'll find a lot of books focused on Christian blessing. And, and there's other Christian books, but those are kind of the two that often dominate the shelves in, in terms of numbers of books. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not forbidding anyone from reading those books. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I, 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 but I do want to point out how, how easily being a disciple of Jesus can be turned into make sure you know how to live and make sure you're doing the right thing to receive, that, that, that that's all that it ends up being. What began as a, as a gospel message about freedom and forgiveness and, and mercy found in Christ can quickly become a, a set of rules meant to please God and squeeze the most that we can out of him. And it can turn into that too easily. And so, so instead, of, instead of focusing upon what we can do for God and what we can get from God, I think these two passages today reorient our focus. We are instead prompted to focus on God. We're encouraged to pursue relationship with him. 
We see it in, in, in Mary's example. We see it in Jesus' example of how we ought to pray. And so as I, as I said at the beginning, Jesus is not Santa Claus. He doesn't base his favor on our actions. He doesn't seek to fill our stocking so that we have every little thing we could ever want in this life and have as easy of a life as possible. Jesus desires relationship with us. That's, that's what he desires. And so we can be like Mary and, and sit at his feet in devotion to him and, and, and just adore him. We can get to know God in such a way through our praying that, 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 that we recognize the desires of his heart and then in turn find our heart beating more and more in rhythm with his. And that, that's at the essence of what it is to be a son of God and a daughter of God. Which again is terms of relationship, right? Sons and daughters. So, you know, I think as we, as we do that, we'll receive the good portion like Mary did. We'll receive the Holy Spirit like those who ask. You know, we'll receive God himself. When we seek God himself, we will find God himself and we will receive God himself. And, and we can know that once we receive God, he's never going to be taken away from us. I mean, how incredible is that? Jesus gives of himself to us and he will not take himself away. And as we seek him, we're going to find him. He's promised us. He, we will find him. We will find him open to us, ready to give himself to us. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's come before this God and, and really just be in awe. Be in awe of the one who desires that relationship with us. Heavenly Father, we, we're so blessed to be able to call you Father. Thank you that, that you love us, that you came to earth, became human, that you gave of yourself on the cross, and it was not in response to anything that we did. It was out of your love for us. And so I, I humbly ask for myself and for all of us here that, that we wouldn't get caught up in, in trying to earn your love and your favor. We want to honor you through how we live. We want to bring glory to you. But we understand that at the core, it's about being with you, having a relationship with you. What a privilege that is. Impacts my life in ways I'm sure I don't even understand. Maybe never will in this life. But I know it's a blessing, and I thank you for it. God, I pray that during this, the rest of this Christmas season and beyond this as well, that, that we would remember that, that, that we would, like Mary, just, just long to sit at your feet, listen to you, be with you, that that would be enough, that that would fill us, and that we would just in turn respond out of that, respond in worship of you, and adoration of you. We give you praise this morning, Father. We, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. As, uh, as we say,